The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, Revelation 16, 12. And its water was dried up so that the way for the kings from the east might be prepared. There are a number of things that happen here to lead to a great battle. The first is the drying up of the waters, drying up of the great river Euphrates. This was one of the great rivers that flowed out of Eden and one of the expressions of God's fullness in sustaining the earth, sustaining the garden of Eden and sustaining the earth. So the river Euphrates plays along with the Tigris, they formed the cradle of human civilization. Uh, The Euphrates being dried up is an indication of the entropy by reason of sin that has come upon the earth, but by reason of the sins of mankind, of humankind. And the confederacy of sin and the prevalence of sin among nations, sin being the failure to retain God in their knowledge and therefore having been given over to the full range of the blandishments of Satan, the allures, the false reason, the appeal to the appetites, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, We're looking at what comes in when the provisions of God that were considered from the beginning, actually from before the foundations of the earth, and deployed in creation, designed to sustain mankind for the duration of the allotted time, and for those who trust God and walk with God to refresh them on their journey. So the the rivers Tigris and Euphrates and particularly now here Euphrates is emblematic. The drying up of uh, the waters of the Euphrates is emblematic of the drying up of revelation and insight and the removal of restraint, so much so that men do what's right in their own eyes and conclude on the basis of what pleases them. So that's one of the things, one of the conditions now. The second is these three loathsome spirits, frogs, We read earlier that there were three great angels bound by the great river Euphrates who were released upon cue because the day had come. Now we know a little bit more about those three great angels bound by the great river Euphrates. They were demonic spirits. Demonic spirits 
in the army, in the, the retinue, and in the service of Satan. Satan, the beast, or rather Satan, the dragon, the beast being the kingdom, and the false prophet being a religious deceiver who turns the word of God into a lie. These three characters, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, are the strength that supports the offspring of Satan. It's Satan in consort with his offspring, the beast, and his enabler, that little horn that speaks blasphemous things against God and against the dwellers of heaven, a religious figure. A religious figure who has led anyone who's seeking God, has led him astray, led her astray, because they sought God but only uh, only to the level of what was convenient to them. Like the rich young ruler who had much and his search for God was tied up with keeping what he had. When we come to talking about the great prostitute of the next chapter, chapter 17, we'll see that she glories in the estate she has acquired and the position she has of influence she has acquired vis-a-vis kings. A fallen woman, a woman who once bore the son, who was caught up to God and to his throne, a woman who fled into the wilderness, pursued by the devil, by the dragon, whom God gave a place of refuge to in the wilderness and provided the means by which the wrath of the of the dragon would be dissipated, but over time she forgot who her benefactor was and chose instead as a harlot would to benefit from her appeal and her beauty to kings. So what is left of the, decept- of the deceived of the earth gather up into this mother of harlots who is a religious figure. But now the kings with whom she has consorted are being drawn forth out of both their own desire, 
the desires of their hearts and their deception by the harlot. They believe things about themselves that make them subject to these unclean spirits typified as frogs but indeed are demonic personages. So the spirit is one thing, the personage who carries the spirit is another. Angels, great angels, bound by the great river Euphrates because they are not angels in the service of God. They serve God in spite of themselves, not by choice, not by their intentional choice. So they prepare the way for the kings of the east. So as we move it forward, Verse 14, for they are spirits of demons and one of the things things they do is they perform signs which lure the kings of the earth and of the whole earth. They, They draw in these political figures who are leaders of nations across the earth, although they are referred to as the kings from the east, we see that the demonic spirits have a broader impact upon the kings of the earth because there are no kings who have not been seduced by this harlot that we'll read about in the next chapter. They gather the whole world, kings of the earth and of the whole world. Just in case you thought it might be just the kings of the east, it calls them the kings of the earth. These signs go out. These demonic spirits are performing signs to draw in the kings of the earth. How are kings of the earth drawn in by signs? What signs draw in kings of the earth? What signs typically deceive kings? Power. Power. Kings are keenly aware of their limitations and they make alliances to enhance their reach and their power. One of the signs that we have seen before in earlier on in the book of Revelation is how they duplicate biblical things just like they did, like the magicians of Egypt did, which is why the plagues are referenced in the preceding pouring out of the vials of the wrath of God. It is to remind people that there was a limitation to the ability of 
the Egyptian magicians and the Egyptian pharaoh. There was a limitation to his ability to oppose God. But you notice again and again and again they will not repent. And the reason they will not repent is because by now they are given over to these lusts to do whatever is not convenient, whatever is not consistent with God. So the kings of the earth are lured by the signs that demonstrate power. These signs are not normal things. These signs duplicate like the Egyptians of Egypt, or the magicians of the Egyptian court, uh, they duplicate stunning miracles, oraculous signs. Why? Because the whole point of the deception is to say, God is with us, not with them. We are the true representations of God. And look, if God is with you, and this is the system that is before mankind, what does that say? It says you have no hope beyond these systems. You have no hope beyond this kingdom. So why are you resisting? In the end, you see, God will have no other gods before him, and anything and everything that mankind loves ahead of God will be the basis of his testing. And if you can't lay it down, whatever the it is, there will be no alternative, no room. If you cannot lay down your addiction to your own power, your addiction to your own wisdom, your love of your own ingenuity, your love of your own ways, how you've been able to survive, how you've been able to thrive, how you've been able to get one over another people while thinking you're so smart, forging ahead, threatening people, to get them to work harder or to work in your interest. All of this corruption. If you think that's a good thing, that's how I get by in this world, there is hell to pay. And this is the time. It deceives kings of the earth and it deceives the people of the whole earth and gather them together to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. It's God who's putting the hook in the jaw. It's God who sets it up to create this environment of war and conflict. It's God. It would appear to be the ambitions of kings 
But no, it's God who sends these foul spirits, spirits of demons, out of the mouths of Satan himself, out of that blasphemous beast, and out of the the horn that sits upon its head, its religious head, creating and presenting as complete an alternative to God as wicked men under the deception of Satan and in league with Satan himself can create. This is the last stand. So God says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. Where else have we heard this, I'm coming as a thief? You remember, of course, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. They of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, and when men shall say, Peace and safety then sudden destruction shall come upon them as birth pangs on a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. The scriptures blend seamlessly together, whether they're taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians, the book of Matthew, the book of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or here in the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is the final summary. Summary of all of that. So God tells them, I'm coming as a thief. Now you'll remember in the reference that I referred to in 1 Thessalonians, he did say, but you are not of the night or of the darkness, that the day should overcome you as a thief. Once again, when he says, I'm coming as a thief, he's not speaking about the people of God. And not because you're in heaven, because you've been raptured out. There is no taking up until the Lord himself is revealed from heaven with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ arise first, even before those who are alive and remain, they will then be changed in a twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trumpet and will follow in the resurrection, they'll follow those who have fallen asleep in Christ. So no, no. This is while they're still on earth and while the Lord Jesus Christ is yet waiting to be revealed from heaven. So how is God going to manage to take care of his people who are still on the earth? He's telling us in all these ways, he won't come as a thief in the night to us. We're not of the darkness, we're not this judgment is coming upon all those who dwell in darkness, whether religious darkness or secular darkness or both. That's who he's coming to as a thief. And then he says, keep your garments, lest you be naked, lest you walk, lest you walk 
naked and they see your shame. What garments? Well, what was it that Adam lost again? He clothed himself in his own, in garments of his own making. This is about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, you have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Again I say to you, look how thoroughly interwoven all the scriptures are into this seamless summation of the end of the age, from Genesis to here in Revelation. They're called and they gather them together to a place called, in the Hebrew, called Armageddon. Now, why would this say that all the kings of the earth and the whole earth are gathered together at a place in the Hebrew called Armageddon? Now, I have been to the valley uh, of what what is reputed to be the valley of uh, uh, Megiddo. It's up in northern Israel at a place where the ruins of Solomon's chariot city are. And the word itself is Ha, H-A-R in Hebrew, which means a mountain, and Megiddo, Ha Megiddo, the mountain of the Lord, or the mountain of Megiddo. There is a, a wonderful reference to this in, Genesis, uh, in Judges chapters 4 and 5, when 10,000 of the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun were gathered to a battle with Sisera and Jabin in this valley. This is where Deborah and Baruch led the armies of Naphtali and Zebulun against uh, the king. Uh, this, is, this is also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the, the, the mountain and the valley, the mountain of Megiddo and the, the, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, Megiddo, Megiddo comes from a root, Gadad, which means to cut off and it means slaughter. You might check this reference in Joel chapter 3 verse, verses 2, 12, and 14. And so Ha-Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, which is the mountain of those who are cut off, the mountain of those who have come for the slaughter. And in, this, in the plains, the plains in that long valley are called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the judgment of God. It's the scene of God's final judgment to those who oppose God. Now, to the Jew, 
this would be a very familiar reference. They had a history of battles at the mountain of Megiddo and the valley of Jehoshaphat. So it's clearly symbolic because you couldn't possibly pack the armies of kings from the whole earth in this. Israel is almost a postage stamp of a country. Can't pack the armies into that valley. It's symbolic. It's God gathering the armies of mankind, those who oppose God, gathering them for destruction. That's what the valley, Battle of, Megiddo, Battle of Armageddon is symbolic, the term Armageddon and the valley of Jehoshaphat are symbolic of a place of death and slaughter, calling of those to the judgment of God. Zion is the mountain of the Lord by contrast. Mountains are elevated places that are associated with particular types. So the mountain of Zion is the dwelling place of those, well, it's the dwelling place of God in this sense that God by His Spirit dwells in a people. And collectively they're called Mount Zion. It's not a reference to the mountain outside of, Israel, outside of Jerusalem. It's the dwelling place of God in the glory of God. So whoever is of God, whoever is of the house of God is a dweller on Mount Zion. Hmm? You can't presume that the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, will gather in Israel on Mount Zion. There is a physical Mount Zion. It's entirely not the center point of the gathering of the sons of God, though it's called Mount Zion. In the same way, Mount Megiddo, Ha-Megiddo, and the valley of destruction and slaughter, Jehoshaphat, are the, dwelling, are the gathering places of the slaughter and they typify what God means to bring about in the end of the age when He brings judgment upon the beast. He's bringing judgment upon the activities of Satan, He's bringing judgment on the beast, He's bringing judgment on the false prophet because in their lying hypocrisies and deception they've led the earth astray and those who are led astray are going to be together with their leaders and the promoters of this lie brought to final judgment. Daniel prophesied this by saying that the court was set and judgment was given in favor of the saints and the beast was torn apart, torn apart, shredded and destroyed. He who made the nations tremble. So 
Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl on the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple, again the naos, from the throne now, saying, It is done. There were noises and thunder, lightning, great earthquakes such as hadn't been. I mean, everything, the foundations of the earth were shaken. Did God not tell us everything that can be shaken will be shaken? This is how it happens. God upends every falsehood every lie, every system, every belief structure, together with all those who put their trust in Him. When God is done, everything will be overturned. So naturally there is a great earthquake. It's the fitting symbol of the final judgments. Because there will be earthquakes in many places, but then there is this final earthquake and the great city divided into three parts. Now great Babylon was remembered before God, and God gave her Babylon, this mother of harlots, God gives to her her judgment. We'll see her in the next chapter holding this very cup. But God is the one who gives her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of God's wrath. When this false church and all of its offsprings have now been brought into the courts of divine judgment. The next time then we'll speak about the great harlot and her judgment from Revelation 17. <laughs> I, was, I saw something that caught my eye the other day on YouTube. There was this woman who was, not that it mattered that she was a woman, but just happened to be a woman, who was talking about how the book of Revelation is God's great love letter um, to the church. Um, and I am amazed that we could spin this book into that. The saints will go through great trials to be purified and separated from the influence of the harlot. And then the whole earth will be judged with this kind of destruction. Listen. 
we're only beginning to see the leading edge of the condition of human beings. Every pretense we have had about the value of human beings will be shattered. will be brought again to the reality that the only value to any human being is if that human being presents himself or herself as a living sacrifice to carry the presence of God. For all of the rest, categorized as the ungodly, God will overthrow the philosophical posture held by so many that human beings have intrinsic value. Corpses will mount up in unbelievable horror as we are confronted with both the frailty of human life and how casually human life will be taken by other humans to the point where we will question whether or not this notion of intrinsic human goodness was ever anything we should believe in in the first place. The unredeemed man is a citizen of the kingdom of darkness and will face the wrath of God in the final outpourings of the bowls of his wrath. Don't kid yourself. All this make-believe ideologies we have developed over time with which we've comforted ourselves and supported ourselves as we heedlessly, recklessly pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and pride of life, do we not think that it was going to be called into judgment? I'm Sam Solon, the bringer of these tidings. But indeed, all I'm doing is reading and explaining the book. I can't, I won't, I don't cause any of this. These matters were prejudged long before I was in my mother's womb. These are days great stress, great trials coming upon the earth. Flee to the refuge of the body of Christ that is the only safe haven. If you have not, I hope you will. And if you have, then be steadfast and unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord.
will continue to look upon the false church being judged finally. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.